I'm, I'm really speaking about all of humanity, you know, without exception of anybody, you know. And I, I know that um, a lot of the content in the songs is very heavy, you know, but uh, see, fantasy is what people want, but reality is what they need. And I've just retired from the fantasy part because I realized that. Uh, Integrity could still be intact But what is the likelihood of that When if you trace the source of each resource they've got That tapped into the veins of the masses The system maintains Feeding on their youthfulness and draining from their brains And then the weak ones are rejected Armed and turned toward the strife They return with force and take away their life But make no mistake There is life in abundance for all to partake So war is redundant and hate is futile But too many could feel it We all are the same The essence of life in this physical plane Nothing can restrain the love You just have to claim the love Yes, I remember the censorship of showing your roots Deception with no lie conditioning for the youths Straightening their follicles while twisting their minds Replacing all traditions with their programs for decline But as I rebel, my naughty swells defiant of the taming My natural advantage I'm proclaiming These spirals map the course of life and represent the force of life Connected to the source of life So make no mistake There is life in abundance for all to partake So war is redundant and hate is futile But too many put feelings All are the same The essence of life in this physical plane So nothing can restrain the love you just have to claim it, you just have to claim it, you just have to claim the love. Take. There is life in abundance for all to partake 
So war is redundant and hate is futile But too many put feelings in All are the same The essence of life in this physical plane So nothing can restrain the love You just have to claim it You just have to claim it You just have to claim it
joyful exaltations and greetings to those who liberate themselves. Welcome to Woman Wednesday. I'm your host, Mariama Tene. Blessings, greetings, and love to all within the listening ear. Tonight's theme is ruminations on race. Ruminations on race. And as there is nothing new under the sun, that the Most High has not already addressed. We're going to look toward the Bible first for overstanding, starting off on 1 Corinthians 9.24 to 9.26. Know ye not that they which run in a race run all, but one receiveth the prize? So run that ye may obtain And every man that striveth for mastery is temperate in all things. Now they do it to obtain a corruptible crown, but we an incorruptible. I therefore so run, not as uncertainty, so fight I, not as one that beateth the air. Philippians 3.14 I press toward the mark for the prize of the high calling of God in Christ Jesus. Malachi 2.10 Have we not all one Father? Hath not one God created us? Why do we deal treacherously every man against his brother by profaning the covenant of our fathers? Why? Acts 17.26 and hath made of one blood all nations of men for to dwell on all the face of the earth, and hath determined the times before appointed and the bounds of their habitation. Romans 2.11 For there is no respect of persons with God. There is no respect of persons. And Ecclesiastes 9.11, I returned and saw under the sun that the race is not to the swift, nor the battle to the strong, neither yet bread to the wise, nor yet riches to men of understanding, nor yet favor to men of skill, but time and chance, time and chance happeneth to them all. And to touch on the metaphysics of it, just briefly in this praise up, I'm going to refer to the Nag Hammadi and what is known as the origin of the world. 
And in it, it speaks specifically of Israel. Thereafter, he created a congregation of angels, thousands and myriads, numberless, which resembled the congregation in the eighth heaven and a firstborn, a firstborn called Israel. Israel, which is the man that sees God and another being called Jesus Christ who resembled the Savior above in the eighth heaven and who sits at his right upon a revered throne. And at his left, there sits the Virgin of the Holy Spirit upon a throne and glorifying him. And the seven virgins stand before her, processing 30 harps and psalteries and trumpets, glorifying him. And all the armies of the angels glorify him and they bless him. Now where he sits is upon a throne of light within a great cloud that covers him. And there was no one with him in the cloud except Sophia, wisdom, the daughter of Pistis, instructing him about all the things that exist in the eighth heaven so that the likenesses of those things might be created in order that his reign might endure until the consumption of the heavens of chaos and their forces. Until the consumption of the heavens of chaos and their forces. So there's a time period on chaos and this time is running out. It's time is running out. And are you running your race? What is the race? Why, why do they call it race? What is the word, sound, power of it all? The race within the race of the races. Overstand. We're going to take a music moment and come back with tonight's theme. Ruminations on race. Blessings and grace.
forces from causing hurt from interfering with the father's plan prepare all daughters of zion organize yourselves all the cubs and the lions the whole rulers of heaven come down to the earth to judge and dismiss those doing any kind of down to the earth Judge and dismiss those doing any kind of hurt to the children of Zion
short, homie. Blessings and grace. And I'm back with tonight's theme, ruminations on race. I've been ruminating race, thinking about it, slowly mulling it over with the advent of so many racial issues happening across the globe. And how did this begin? This rivalry, this inherent drive to run ahead of and cut off and stop and place obstacles against one another, right? The running of the race, of the races. And that led me to research this topic and I'm here to share some of the things that um, I'm used upon and uh, research. And so the definition of race, which I found very interesting, because I never knew this definition, and that is it's a strong or rapid current of water flowing through a narrow channel. Again, that goes to the current and the currency and what we currently see overstand through our eyes, through our soul, through our mind's eye. So a strong, rapid current of water flowing through a narrow channel, the current flowing in such a course. And we are made up of, what, 80% water? And our bodies are narrow channels, overstand? And so a course, a set course or duration of time, or the course of life, is also the definition of race. A contest of speed, a contest or rivalry involving progress toward a goal. What's the goal? Well, I spoke about it in the praise up. The goal is to get to the most high, right? A track or channel in which something rolls or slides, specifically a groove. You have to get in your groove, right, as you run this race. And um, another definition of race is to go and move or function at top speed or out of control. Now, this should put into mind how ones live their life, overstand. To revolve too fast under a diminished load. To revolve too fast. What's too fast, right? Under a diminished load. So to drive or ride at a high speed. To transport or propel at maximum speed. So we're supposed to be moving at the speed of life. To speed an engine without a working load or with a transmission disengaged. So the transmission is disengaged when you race the engine. Right? And medically, medically race means an actuality or potentially interbreeding group within a species. A category of humankind of humankind that shares certain distinctive physical traits. And when you look at the etymology of race, it comes from Old Norse ras, which means the act of running or the rush of water. And it also res, a running, a rush, a leap, a jump, storming, an attack or else a survival of the Old English word with the spelling influenced by the Old Norse one. And so the Proto-Germanic res 
also the Middle Dutch raisin, which is to rave and to rage. Isn't that interesting? In that part of the world, race, where the word race is coming from, it means to rave and to rage. And German raisin, which is to rage in the old English form, to rage, a fire. So then you have the fire and you have the water. And you have different groups on the planet taking the opposite ends of the same spectrum, fire and water. And dousing each other and lighting each other up on a regular basis. Overstand the word sound power of it all. And it's also from a variant form which means to be in motion. So in the northern world, it became general in English around 1550, meaning the act of running. And as early as the 1400s for contest of speed. So it seems to me as though ones have got it confused and they're using speed and lighting up and dousing each other as opposed to keeping their eyes on the prize which was the overstanding of the rush of the waters which we carry the rushing of it and utilizing it in the manifestation what the Most High guides. Now I'm going to move forward into what is known as the Kabbalah of the Mayan Mysteries, which was um, a book by Samuel Anwer. And it talks about the root races. And so every planet supposedly develops seven root races and seven sub races. Our planet Earth already developed five root races supposedly, and it needs to develop two more root races. After the seven root races, the planet Earth, already transformed by cataclysms over the course of millions of years, will become a new moon. Now, the, this entire Earth's evolving and evolving life, according to Kabbalistic knowledge, came from the moon. And so when great life abandoned the moon, it died and became a desert. The moon also developed seven root races, and each one of them developed seven sub-races. So the soul of the moon, the lunar life, is now devolving and evolving in our planet Earth. And this is how the worlds supposedly reincarnate. So the Aztecs state that the human beings was the first root race and of the first root race were extraordinary and dark colored giants. The Aztecs describes that the human beings of the first root race were extraordinary dark colored giants. And this was a very civilized, androgynous, um, semi-physical, semi-ethereal, asexual root race. And their individuals could reduce their height to the size of an average person. 
of this present Aryan root race. And so their rituals as well as their wisdom were amazing and filled with amazement. And barbarism did not exist in their epoch. And this root race was devoured by the tigers of wisdom. And so with the tigers of wisdom, each individual was a master of wisdom. And their reproduction system was effectuated by means of a vociferous act. This is a system similar to that which organic cells use for, re for reproduction, which is the process of cellular division. This is how the organism of the father-mother was divided into two. And the androgynous child was fastened to the father-mother for a while. Now, the first root race lived on the sacred island situated in the northern polar cap. Sounds like Antarctica to me. And that island still exists. Yet, it is in a jinn state. Those who have familiarity with the Quran know who the jinn are. So it's in a jinn state within the fourth vertical. And so the second root race... This was the Hyperborean humanity. The degenerated people of the second root race converted themselves into monkeys. And these are the ancestors of the present monkeys. Now this right here puts me in mind to a book I read years ago called The Urantria. And talks about the first um, ones that were found on this planet were like monkeys. And... Um, those that are interested, it's called the Urantria. And so, these are the ancestors of the present monkeys. And they reproduce themselves by budding, such as the plants do. From their trunks sprout many branches. And they were wiped out by strong hurricanes. And the third root race was the Lumerian race, which inhabited Mu which today is the, is the Pacific Ocean, and they perished by fire raining from the sun, which is volcanoes and earthquakes. This root race and their production system was by means of gemation. Lumeria was a very extensive continent. And so the Lumerians who degenerated had afterwards faces similar to birds, that is why some savages, when remembering tradition, adorn their heads with feathers. Interesting. And the fourth root race, which was the Atlanteans. And so it finished with a great inundation. The pre-Columbian tribes of America are descendants of this root race, as well as the primeval Chinese and Egyptians. And the fifth is the Aryan root race. We are this root race. Don't take that word Aryan for what someone else told you it to be. Look up what it is in actuality. Aryan means noble. It means noble. Just because Hitler took it and spewed it and corrupted and perverted it like he did that sacred Sanskrit symbol. And renamed it a swastika. You know, similar to, you know, there are so many symbols that have been taken and corrupted. And ownership of it has been granted to the corruption. And so I ask the, the awake and aware ones to overstand the grand plan.
So, we are supposed to be the noble ones. The nobility. That's who we are. So, in the first round of our earth was created for the matter, with matter from the mental plane. The first round was created with matter from the mental plane. And the second round, the earth condensed into substance of the astral plane. And the third, the earth condensed into an ethereal form and is in this present, the fourth round, the earth crystallized into a physical and chemical form. So the earth evolves around the laws of planetary karma. And the future fifth round will develop in the ethereal world. And the sixth round in the astral world. And the seventh round in the mental world. And afterwards, a great cosmic night will arrive. Now this is what is established in the Kabbalah of the Mayan mysteries. Breaking down some of the ancient wisdoms of the root races that were planted and seeded. And in universal Gnosticism, the term Aryan race refers to the vast majority of the planet's population. And it's noted for its close relationship with Aries and Mars. Aries or Mars. And the god of war, which makes so much sense when you think about that now with Mars. And the Aryan race, the fifth great race to to exist on this planet, the noble ones, is under the guidance of Ares, Mars, the fifth of the seven spirits before the throne of God. So every root race has seven sub-races, and the seed of our Aryan root race is Nordic, supposedly. But when the Nordics mixed themselves with the Atlantean survivors, this gave origin to the sub-races. And so the first Subrace it flourished in Central Asia, and thou and those now vanished kingdoms of Central Asia, and whose ruins still exist in the Himalayas around the country of Tibet, powerful spiritual civilizations of the first subraces, and the second subrace it flourished in India and the entire south of Asia and the sacred land of the Vedas in the ancient Hindustan. And then the third sub-race, it created powerful civilizations like Babylon and Egypt, and were the scenario of very rich and powerful civilizations created by the third Aryan sub-race. And the fourth sub-race, it developed in Rome, Greece, Italy, and Athens, the great city founded by the goddess Athena. And before their degeneration and destruction, because they're ruled by war, Greece and Italy were marvelous scenarios where the powerful civilizations of the fourth subrace developed. And the fifth subrace were the Anglo-Saxon and the Teutonic. And the first and second world wars with all their barbarism and moral corruption and point with their accusatory fingers to the men and women of the fifth subrace. And the sixth subrace is the mixture of the Spanish conquistadors with the native tribes. The effort to form the sixth subrace in the Redskin territory was very difficult because the English conquistadors destroyed them 
and they assassinated them instead of mixing themselves fully with the natives only in very insignificant and incipient way was the mixture of blood performed and this is why the occult fraternity saw it necessary to convert the North American territory into a melting crucible of races. So the formation of the six sub-race in the United States had enormous difficulties and all the races of the world have mixed. So the six sub-race in Latin America was formed very easily and this is something that must not be ignored. Must not be ignored. And the seven rounds decrease and increase in their respective durations, as well as the seven races in each. So the fourth round, as well as every fourth race, are the shortest, while the first and the seventh rounds and the first and seventh root races are the longest. Each root race succeeds another, although there is a period of overlapping between the old forms dying out and the new forms beginning, to become more and more dominant. The time span applied to root race is considerable. So, for example, the fifth, according to records, covered the years 10,000 B.C. to 3,000 B.C. in the right-brained megalithic cultures and 3,000 B.C. to 2400 C.E. in the left-brained modern cultures. So the periods of the great root races are divided from each other by great convulsions of nature, by the great geological changes. Every root race is separated by a catastrophe, a cataclysm, the basis and historical foundation of the fables, the myths, woven later on into the religious, spiritual, mythological fabric of everyday people, whether civilized or savage under the names of, of deluges, or showers of fire, or great floods, and the like. Our present continents have been submerged and had the time to reappear again and bear their new groups of mankind and civilization, and that at the first great geological upheaval, at the next cataclysm, in a series of periodical cataclysms that occur from the beginning to the end of every round. Our known continents will go down and the ancient continents will rise again. So it has to be remembered that the concept is that the souls develop through an evolutionary process from mineral to plant to animal to human. And there is no transmigration backwards so that the human cannot go backwards to an animal. Now where did skin color come from, right? The distinction that's made between the races is done based on skin color. So we learn that all humans on earth are descended from Noah and his wife and his three sons and their wives. And before that were Adam and Eve. But we have different groups called races. And with what seem to be greatly differing features. The most obvious is skin color. And so we know that skin color is governed by more than one pair of genes. Right? And so, a range of colors from very light to very dark can result in a single generation, beginning with this particular type of mid-brown parent. 
So if a person who is pure black, in the sense of having no genes for lightness at all, were to intermarry and migrate to a place where their offspring could not marry other people of light color, all their descendants would be black or pure black. And then you'd have the occasional albino. And that happens as well in pure black cultures where there is an absence of melanin in the hair, the skin, the eyes. And so if quote-unquote white people were to marry only other white people and migrate to a place where their offspring could not marry darker people, in a pure sense, a white line would result and they would have lost the genes needed to produce large amounts of melanin and be black. So it's easily possible beginning with two middle brown parents to get not only all the colors but also people in groups with stable shades of skin color. So what about people in groups that are permanently middle brown such as we have today? And so if they intermarry with others, they'll be able to produce only mid-brown offspring. And if all the people on the earth were to intermarry freely and then break into random groups that kept to themselves, a whole new set of gene combinations could emerge. It may be possible to have almond eyes with black skin and blue eyes with black, tightly curled hair. We need to remember, of course, that the way in which genes express themselves is much more complex than the simplified picture. Even today, with the particular people group, you will often see a feature normally associated with another group. So, for example, you will occasionally see Europeans with broad, flat noses, or a Chinese person that's very, very brown skin, or with very, very pale skin, or Caucasian-seeming eyes. And so most scientists now agree that for modern humans, race has little or no biological meaning. And this also argues strongly against the idea that people groups have been evolving separately for a long time, for long periods. Now, after the flood, for a few centuries until Babel, there was only one language and one culture group. And thus, there were no barriers to marriage within this group. And this would tend to keep the skin color of the population away from extremes. And very dark and very light skin would appear, of course. But people tending on either direction would be free to marry someone lighter or darker than themselves, ensuring that the average color stayed roughly the same. And the same would be true of characteristics other than skin color. Under these sorts of circumstances, distinct differences in appearance will never emerge. To obtain such separate lines, you need to break a large breeding group into smaller groups and keep them separate. That is, prevent interbreeding between groups. And this would be true for animals as well as human populations. And this is what happened supposedly in Babel. Once separate languages were imposed, there was instantaneous barriers. Not only would people tend to not marry someone they couldn't understand, but entire groups which spoke the same language would have difficulty relating to and trusting those that did not. So thus they would move away or be forced away from each other into different environments. And this, of course, is what the Most High intended. 
It is unlikely that each small group would carry the same broad range of skin colors as the original larger group. So one group might have more dark genes on average, while other might have more light genes. And the same thing would occur with other characteristics, such as nose shape, eye shape. And since they would intermarry only within their own language group, these differences would no longer be averaged out as before. And as these groups migrated away from Babel, they encountered new and different climate zones, and this would also have an effect and the balance of inherited factors in the population. And the effects of the environment are nowhere near as important as the initial genetic mix of each group. And as an example, consider a group of people who move to a cold region with little sunlight. Here, the dark-skinned members would not be able to produce enough vitamin D and thus would easily be less healthy and have fewer children. So in time, the light-skinned members would predominate. And if several different groups went to such an area, and if one group happened to be carrying few genes for lightness, this particular group could in time die out. And thus natural selection acts on the characteristics already present and does not create new ones. It's also interesting to note that ancient Neanderthals of, of um, Europe, recognized as fully human, show evidence of vitamin D deficiency, and many of their bones were bent. In fact, plus as large doses of evolutionary prejudice caused them to be classified as ape men for a long time. It is thus quite plausible that they were a dark-skinned people who were unfit for the environment into which they moved because their skin color genes they began with. And this is natural selection, it's called. It does not produce skin color, but only acts on the created capacity for making skin pigment that's already there. So, conversely, fair-skinned people in very sunny regions could easily be affected by skin cancer. Thus, in these regions, dark-skinned people would be more readily able to survive and come to predominate. So we see that the pressure of the environment can affect the balance of genes within a group and even eliminate entire groups. And that is why we see to a large extent that the physical characteristics of people tend to match the environments where they live in. You know, Nordic people with pale skin and equatorial people with dark skin. But this is not also always so also. Like the Eskimos, the Inuit, have brown skin, yet they live where there's not much sun. So that takes that idea out the window. You know, so presumably they all have a genetic makeup, which would not be able to produce lighter skin. On the other hand, Native South Americans living on the equator do not have black skin. So these examples confirm that natural selection does not create new information. If the genetic makeup of a group of people does not allow variation in color toward the desirable natural selection cannot create such a variation. So pygmies live in a hot area but rarely experience strong sunshine in their dense jungle environment yet they have dark skin. So pygmies can be a good example of another factor that has affected the racial history of man. Discrimination. People different from the norm a very light-skinned person, a very light person in a dark people group have historically been regarded as abnormal and rejected by the group. So it would be harder for that person to get a marriage partner. This would further tend to eliminate 
the light genes from dark people and vice versa, and in this way groups have tended to purify themselves. Also, in some instances, interbreeding within a small group can accentuate a commonly occurring unusual feature that would otherwise be swamped out by marriage outside the group. And so it's easy to think that since different groups of people have yellow skin, quote-unquote red skin, black skin, white skin, brown skin, there must be many different skin pigments or colorings. And since different chemicals for coloring would mean a different genetic recipe or code in the hereditary blueprint for each people group, it appears to be a real problem. How could all those differences develop within a short time? However, we all have the same coloring pigment in our skin, melanin. This is a dark brownish pigment that's produced in different amounts and special cells in our skin. And if we had none, as do people called albinos, who inherit a mutation cause defect and cannot produce melanin, then we would have very white skin or pink skin coloring. If we produce a little melanin, we would be European white. If our skin produced a great deal of melanin, we would be a very dark black, and in between, of course, are all shades of brown, and there are no significant, no other significant skin pigments. So, what's really important in determining skin color is melanin and the amount produced. So what does melanin do? It protects, it protects against um, ultraviolet light from the sun. If you have too little melanin in a very sunny environment, you will easily suffer sunburn and skin cancer. If you have a great deal of melanin and you live in a country where there's a little sunshine, it will be harder for you to get enough vitamin D, which needs sunshine for its production in your body. And you may suffer from vitamin D deficiency, which can cause a bone disorder such as rickets. We also need to be aware that we, that we are not born with a genetically fixed amount of melanin. Rather, we have genetically fixed potential to produce a certain amount. And the amount increases in response to sunlight. For example, you may have noticed that when your Caucasian friends who spend their time indoors during the winter headed for the beach at the beginning of the summer, they all had more or less the same pale white skin color. As the summer went on, however, some became much darker than others. And how is it many different skin colors can arise in a short time? You have to remember that when we speak of different colors, we are referring to different shades of one color, melanin. If a person from a very, from a very black people group marries someone from a very white people group, their offspring is called mulattoes or mid-brown. It's long been known that when mulattoes marry each other, their offspring may be virtually any color, ranging from very dark to very light. Understanding this gives us the clues we need to answer about our question, but first we must look in a simple way at some of the basic principles of heredity. So the word gene refers to a small part of information which has the instructions for only one type of enzyme. So it may be simply understood as a portion of the message string containing only one specification. So genes come in pairs, and so in the case of hemoglobin, for example, we have two sets of code instruction for hemoglobin manufacture, one coming from the mother and one coming from the father. This is a very useful arrangement because if you inherit a damaged gene from one parent, that could instruct your cells 
to produce a defective hemoglobin, you are still likely to get a normal one from the other parent, which will continue to give you the right instructions. Thus, if only one half of the hemoglobin in your body will derive will be will will be defective. In fact, each of us carries hundreds of genetic mistakes inherited from one or the other of our parents, which are usefully covered up by being matched with a normal gene from the other parent. Now, the origin of human races does not conform to the popular concept of evolution, from simple to complex. There has been no evolution of genes which did not previously exist. Only the recombination and degeneration of created genetic information. No race of the world today comes from a background of zero technology or of innocent ignorance of God. All cultures which do not have a correct knowledge of God have got that way by deliberate rejection. There are no primitives in need of education and technical aid so that they can understand the gospel, but spiritual degenerates in need of the gospel so that they can appreciate education and the relevance of technology. Now, I'm going to end here and continue next week on what is this thing called race, the false classifications of people, what is it based on, is it based on biological or scientific proof, race as a political construction, right? And the concept of race created as a classification of human beings with the purpose of giving power to certain groups and to legitimize the dominance of groups over the other. So we're going to discuss the construction of race and racism next week. So hopefully this was eye-opening and enlightening and serves a purpose for those that it, that it feeds. In Yeshua's name, we're going to take a music moment and come back with the go and gnosis. Blessings and grace. Hey, it's only a fool learn from your own experience. Experience teach wisdom. So don't confuse experience with knowledge or belief. Live in the moment. Strive to be happy. Joy coming in the morning. Love sustain the soul. You understand? He who starts behind in the race of life must forever remain behind or run faster than the man in front. But remember, the race is not for the swim, but to endure to the end. I will open my mouth in a parable and sing the dark sayings of old. Does not wisdom and knowledge stretch forth the hands unto you, O children, I cry. All the words of my mouth speak righteousness. All the days of my life will tell. Take heed of the words of Jehovah.
believe that our men are to are here to to grow themselves into the full into the best good that they can be at least this is what i want to do and you know this is my belief that we are supposed to i'm supposed to grow to the best good that i can get and uh, when i as i as i'm going there becoming this and uh, when i become if i ever become if this will just come out of the home so whatever it's going whatever that's going to be that's what it will be I'm not in, so much interested in trying to say what it's going to be. I don't know. Mm. But I just hope they, I realize that good can only bring good. I I don't feel there's an answer to this. I think that uh, it's just, uh, it, it, is, it is either thing that they, the person who doesn't understand, will understand in time, mm -hmm. upon repeated listenings, or it's a thing that he never will understand. Mm. And, uh, if, you know... That's the way it is. There are many things in life we don't understand. Right. <laughs> and we go on anyway.
blessings and grace, and I'm back with the Go and Gnosis, your news infused with consciousness. I'm going to start off first on thewakingtimes.com. Monsanto and Bayer are maneuvering to take over the cannabis industry. It has been rumored for years that Monsanto plans to take over the cannabis industry with genetic engineering just as they've taken over the, the corn and soy industries. Although they have always denied having any intentions to do so, at this point, it's unlikely that anybody really believes them. In contrast, many in the cannabis sphere are prepared to resist any kind of GMO takeover of marijuana by Monsanto for any of their cohorts. Evidence is mounting, though, which points strongly to the notion that Monsanto does indeed plan to control the cannabis plant, and it doesn't look good for medicinal users or anyone planning on getting into the industry. You may, re you may remember hearing back in September that Bayer, the largest pharmaceutical company in the world, made a deal to buy out Monsanto for $66 billion, although Monsanto was voted the most evil company in the world in 2013, and its reputation has continued to fall since, since Bayer still went ahead with the buyout. And Monsanto and miracle Grow have intimate business ties. According to Big Buds magazine, Monsanto and Scott's miracle Grow have a deep business partnership and plan on taking over the cannabis industry. Hawthorne, a group front for Scott's, has already purchased three of the major cannabis growing companies, General Hydroponics, Botanicare, and Gavita, or Gavita. Many other hydroponic companies have also reported attempted buyouts by Hawthorne. And Jim Hagedorn, CEO of Scott's miracle Grow, has even said that he plans to invest like a half a billion in taking over the pot business. It's the biggest thing I've ever seen in lawn and garden. He also invested in companies such as Leaf, which grows cannabis in electronically regulated indoor terrariums accessible via smartphone. So Bayer and Monsanto trade industry secrets on producing genetically modified marijuana. It is logical that Bayer, being the parent company, would work together with Monsanto in order to share secrets which would advance mutual business. Many people in the cannabis industry have been warning about this. Um, and this is what's happening. It's possible that Bayer and Monsanto could create a monopoly on marijuana seeds in the same way they have created a monopoly on corn and soy. And so through immense corporate power and the enforcement of international patent law, these corporations could place themselves in a position of total control over cannabis as a medicine as well as for recreational use by using the same model as they do with the food crops they control. But not all hope is lost. There's still a chance to fight back against Bayer Monsanto monopoly by boycotting genetically engineered products, miracle Grow and other Scott's brand products, Bayer Pharmaceuticals and companies that do business with any of these. If you buy cannabis seeds, they can be stored for years to be used at a later date. If you live in an area where it's legal, grow your own while supporting hydroponics and nutrient companies that don't do business with these corporations. And on the NewYorkTimes.com, Trump and Putin will hold summit meetings, officials say. 
President Trump plans to meet with Vladimir Putin of Russia next month in a one-on-one summit meeting, a politically sensitive encounter that could exacerbate strains with NATO allies, even if it eases tension between the United States and Russia. It would be the first formal summit meeting specifically for Mr. Trump and Mr. Putin, who have met twice at annual gatherings of world leaders, and it comes at a particularly delicate moment, with midterm elections looming in the United States and the special counsel's investigation of Mr. Trump's ties to Russia grinding on. But the president has expressed a determination to meet with Mr. Putin's administration, officials said, especially in the aftermath of his encounter with Kim Jong-un, the leader of North Korea, which Mr. Trump celebrated as a diplomatic triumph, even if it has produced little in the way of tangible results. Mr. Trump dispatched to Moscow his national security advisor, John R. Bolton, who met on Wednesday with Mr. Putin. Afterwards, Mr. Bolton said a time and place for a meeting would be announced Thursday. Other administration officials said Helsinki, Finland, was a prime candidate. And on CNBC.com, China says it will increase its military presence in Africa. China is looking to strengthen defense engagement with African countries, adding to its economic and commercial profile on the continent. That would complement existing Chinese ventures, such as peacekeeping activities and weapon sales, as well as protecting Chinese assets, experts say. For decades, China's presence in Africa has largely focused on economic, commercial, and peacekeeping activities. Now Beijing is building on that by establishing greater military links to protect its national assets on the continent and gain greater geopolitical influence. The People's Liberation Army conducts regular joint training exercises across the region and in certain countries that are home to a major Chinese infrastructure projects under the Belt and Road Initiative, the communist state has been especially active. In Djibouti, where Chinese companies have constructed strategic ports and Africa's first electric transnational railway, Beijing last year formally launched its first overseas military base, which also operates as a logistics and intelligence facility. Many experts now anticipate more Chinese bases in the years to come, with Namibia rumored as the potential location. Meanwhile, in Tanzania, where the state-run conglomerate China Merchant Holdings International is hoping to invest in the Bagamoyo Megaport. China built a complex designed to train local armed forces early this year. And at the first-ever China-Africa Defense and Security Forum in Beijing on Tuesday, the communist state announced it will provide African countries with comprehensive support on matters such as piracy, and counterterrorism. That includes providing technologies, equipment, personal, and strategic advice, local media reported. All that comes amid expectations for the U.S. to reduce troops in Africa under President Donald Trump's America First policy, which is set to boost Chinese President Xi Jinping's government as the dominant foreign power on the continent. The strength and defense ties complement Chinese existing ventures, particularly weapon sales, according to specialists. In recent years, Chinese arms sales to Africa have surpassed the United States, said Luke Patsy. 
senior researcher at the Danish Institute for International Studies. In particular, Chinese small arms and light weapons have spread rapidly since China is less inhibited by selling arms to countries in the midst of conflict than Western providers. That goes hand-in-hand hand with Beijing's expanding military cooperation. He continued, A desire to safeguard Chinese worker and Chinese-funded projects on the continent is likely behind the government's efforts. China's security concerns are actually aimed at its own nationals, and military diplomacy is skillfully used to protect them and their interests, the Netherlands Institute on International Relations said in a recent report. The evacuation of hundreds of Chinese and foreign nationals from Yemen in 2015 on a People's Liberation Army frigate that sailed from the coast of Somalia proved just how crucial the presence of a military logistics base on the eastern coast of Africa is for China. It continued, the world's largest, the world's second largest economy has long described Sino-Africa cooperation as a win-win argument, one that provides China with natural resources and African economies with badly needed infrastructure. But while the flood of Chinese resources may be welcomed, by the region's cash-strapped governments, the fear is that increased capital could translate into political leverage. In fact, many speculate that it was Beijing's concerns over investments that resulted in the 2017 coup that ousted Zimbabwe's Robert Mugabe, a charge that Xi's administration has denied. The concern from a lot of partners is exactly what role China is going to be playing in the region and how it's going to fit with existing military organizations and security forums. Asia Regional Director and the Economist Intelligent Unit says that it's really an unsettling element of something new coming into the equation that's got a lot of people concerned. African countries should be clear-eyed that the days of China's strict adherence to its long-standing non-interference policy are over, Patay added. So China is looking to increase its military presence in Africa. And moving forward on thehindu.com, thehindu.com, U.S. tells India and China to end all imports from Iran by November 4th. Iran is India's third largest oil supplier after Iraq and Saudi Arabia, with Tehran having supplied 18.4 million tons of crude oil in the first 10 months of the 2017-18 fiscal year. The United States has told India and other countries to cut oil imports from Iran to zero by November 4th or face sanctions, making it clear that there would be no waivers to anyone. Iran is India's third largest oil supplier behind Iraq and Saudi Arabia. Last month, President Donald Trump withdrew the United States from the landmark Iran nuclear deal, reimposing U.S. sanctions that had been suspended and returned for curbs on Tehran's nuclear program. At the time, the Trump administration gave foreign companies either 90 or 180 days to wind down their businesses with Iran counterparts, depending on the type of commercial activity that they're doing. Now Washington is stepping up pressure on all countries, including India and China, to completely stop buying oil from Iran. On China and India, yes, certainly, the State Department official told reporters when asked if the U.S. has told all countries, including India and China, to stop 
all their imports of Iranian oil by November 4th. The U.S. officials said Indian and Chinese companies would be subject to the same sanctions as those in other countries. Given the huge energy needs, India and China are major importers of Iranian oil. Their India and China companies would be subject to the same sanctions that everyone else are if they engage in those sectors of the economy that are sanctionable, where there are sanctions imposed prior to 2015. We will certainly be requesting that their oil imports go to zero, the State Department said, on condition of anonymity. We view this as one of our top national security priorities, the official said. Responding to questions, the official said all countries should start reducing the import of oil from Iran now and bring it to zero by November 4th. The official said this is part of the Trump administration's effort to isolate streams of Iranian funding and are looking to highlight the totality of Iran's malign behavior across the region. We remain engaged with the EU3 throughout this process, and we're going to continue to branch out in new countries and reach new partners as the weeks go forward, the official said. The EU3 refers to France, Germany, and the United Kingdom. Now, India may take up issue. Iran's oil import could emerge as a major topic of discussion between India and the U.S. during the first 2 plus 2 dialogue next week. External Affairs Minister and Defense Minister would be in the U.S. next week for talks with their American counterparts, the Secretary of State and the Defense Secretary. The State Department asserted that there would be no waivers under the new sanctions regime. Noting that America's allies are aware of its concern, the official claim that these countries want to work with the U.S., so the U.S. is putting pressure on the ones around the world to corner Iran. And as Iran goes in the corner, according to Reuters.com, Iran reopens uranium feedstock plant in preparation to boost enrichment. Iran has reopened a nuclear plant idle for nine years. So you're putting them in a corner and you're expecting them to do, to do one thing, but what are they going to do? They're going to survive. So Iran has reopened a nuclear plant idle for nine years. Its atomic energy agency, the AEOI, said on Wednesday, as Tehran prepares to increase uranium enrichment capacity if a nuclear deal with world powers falls apart after the U.S. withdrawal. U.S.-Iranian tensions have resurged since President Donald Trump pulled Washington out of the 2015 nuclear accord, calling it deeply flawed. Under the deal, Iran restricted its enrichment program to ease concerns it could not be put to developing nuclear weapons and in return won relief from sanctions. European signatories are trying to save the accord, which they see as crucial to forestalling an Iran nuclear weapon. However, Iranian Supreme Leader Ayatollah Ali Khomeini ordered that the AEOI this month to start preparations to upgrade enrichment capacity in case the European efforts fail. The AEOI said on Wednesday that in response to Khomeini's order and Trump's renunci renunciation of the deal, a plant for the production of the UF-6, the feedstock for centrifuge machines that enrich uranium, had been relaunched in a barrel of yellow cake has been delivered there. 
Uranium ore, known as yellow cake, is converted into a gas called uranium hexafluoride, UF6, before enrichment. The UF6 factory, which had been active since 2009 due to a lack of yellow cake, is part of the Ifishan Uranium Conversion Facility, according to the AEOI statement on its website. Iran has imported a huge amount of yellow cake since the nuclear deal in 2015 and has also produced some domestically. The International Atomic Energy Agency and the UN nuclear watchdog that is policing Iran's compliance with the nuclear deal said on June 5th that the AEOI had informed it of tentative plans to resume production of UF-6. The move is symbolic and permissible under the nuclear deal, which allows Iran to enrich uranium to 3.67%, far below the 90% of weapons-grade uranium, and caps its stock of enriched uranium hexafluoride at 300 milligrams, 660 pounds. President Hassan Rouhani has written to counterparts in France, Germany, and Britain, warning that time to salvage the nuclear deal is running out. Rouhani's chief of staff was quoted saying on Wednesday by the government's website that Rouhani had expressed Iran's demand very clearly in this letter. Washington will start reimposing some economic penalties on Tehran in August and more in November. The tightening of U.S. sanction pressure has set Washington and Tehran adversaries since Iran's 1979 Islamic Resolution back on a course of confrontation after a period of caution under Trump's predecessor, Barack Obama. Rouhani urged Iranians on Wednesday to bring America to its knees. It was They were urged to bring America to its knees. We have to pray that the ones in America living under this can stay standing. And on the dailysaba.com, four Arab states act against Palestine by backing the U.S. plan. Defying the position of the Palestinian Authority, President Mahmoud Abbas, four Arab states gave their support to the Middle East peace plan overseen by Jared Kushner, Trump's senior advisor and son-in-law, leaving the Israeli-Palestinian peace process in tatters. Officials from Egypt, Saudi Arabia, and the United Arab Emirates, and Jordan, interviewed by the Israeli Hayon Daily, expressed their displeasure with Abbas's instances on refusing to meet, according to Al Jazeera. In an interview with the Palestinian newspaper published on Sunday, Kushner said Washington would announce its Middle East peace plan soon, and would press on with or without Palestinian President Abbas. Kushner visited Jordan, Saudi Arabia, Qatar, and Egypt before talks on Friday and Saturday with Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu. His comments underlined gapping divisions between Washington and the Palestinian leadership that have widened since Trump recognized Jerusalem as Israel's capital in December and moved the U.S. Embassy there overriding decades of U.S. policy. Palestinian officials who want Eastern, East Jerusalem as the capital of a future state accuse Kushner of trying to undermine Abbas and what they described as their leader's moderate camp. In the interview with the Palestinian newspaper, Kushner, who was meeting with the leaders in the region, but not Abbas, refused to go into details on his peace plan.
Palestinian leaders have refused to meet with the Trump team since the president recognized Jerusalem as Israel's capital in December. Relations between Washington and the Palestinians have been severely strained since the President Donald Trump's December decision to recognize Jerusalem as Israel's capital and to move the American embassy there. As Trump policies appear to favor Israel more than those of his predecessor, Barack Obama, Abbas has resisted saying the U.S. can no longer play a leading role in peace efforts. Abbas has refused any contact with Trump's administration since Washington's recognition. Jerusalem is an emotional issue and the epicenter of the Israeli-Palestinian conflict. Israel captured the city's eastern half, home to the holy sites for Jews, Christians, and Muslims. In 1967, Mideast war and annexed it. Palestinians seek East Jerusalem as the capital of a future state. So they're moving on without the Palestinians, and they're going to make their own peace. Okay, the U.S., is leading the charge in this, along with four Arab states that are sticking to the U.S.'s side. And on the Reuters.com, Paul Manafort. Manafort had a $10 million loan from Russian oligarch, says the court filing. A search warrant application unsealed on Wednesday revealed closer links than previously known between President Donald Trump, former campaign manager Paul Manafort, and a Russian oligarch with close ties to the Kremlin. An affidavit attached in 2017 application, a FBI agent said he had reviewed tax returns for a company controlled by Manafort and his wife that showed a $10 million loan from a Russian leader identified as Oleg Deripaska. So, this man got a $10 million loan from a major Russian player and he was Trump's campaign manager. And so now Trump's going to have, you have to hand it to him, he's going to have his own one-on-one summit with Putin, irrespective, irregardless of the investigation and what ties you guys can find that combined. He's, he's going to do it right in your face and go meet with Putin. Even though his campaign manager, who helped him get elected, got a $10 million loan from someone close to Putin. So the search warrant application also confirmed that Mueller has been investigating Manafort's role in the June 9, 2016 meeting that he attended at the Trump Tower in New York between Donald Trump Jr., a Russian lawyer and self-professed Kremlin informant who purportedly was carrying damaging information on Hillary Clinton, who at the time was a Democratic nominee for president. So the FBI sought communications, records, documents, and other files involving any of the attendees of the June 9th meeting at Trump Tower. So Iris Agalov is a Russian oligarch close to Putin who joined the elder Trump in staging the 2013 Miss Universe contest in Moscow. So all of the ties that bind are showing its laces. And on TheGuardian.com, the Duke of Cambridge was clapped and cheered by Palestinians as he visited a refugee camp in Ramallah during a historic first visit by a member of the British royal family to the occupied West Bank. A red carpet marching band and honor guard welcomed the 36-year-old prince on his official visit, during which he toured a clinic and a school in a Jala Zone camp where 15,000 people live. 
The Palestinian president, Mahmoud Abbas, told Williams during their meeting that he hoped his homeland would be fully independent state by the next time he visited the Middle East. The Duke ended the day with a speech at the British Consul General's residence in Jerusalem, in which he told Palestinians, My message tonight is that you have not been forgotten. I hope that through my being here and understanding the challenges you face, the links of friendship and mutual respect between the Palestinian and British people will grow stronger. The Duke met Israel's president, Reuven Rivlin, on Tuesday, who had asked him to deliver a message of peace to Abbas. The Palestinian leader who met the Duke in his Ramallah offices on Wednesday morning reaffirmed his full commitment to achieving a full and lasting peace based on the two-state solution where the state of Palestine lives side by side with the state of Israel, with both supervising peace and security. He added, I hope this will not be the last visit, that your next visit will be to a state of Palestine where we have our full independence. William responded with his own hopes for peace for the region. At one point, the Duke told Abbas he was very glad that our two countries work so closely together. While diplomats and media have praised the visit as historic, some Palestinians question the motive behind William's trip. Tariq, a grocer from the nearby refugee camp, said he hoped William was nothing like the U.S. president. Trump is the problem. He's destroyed the Palestinian people. If he's like Trump, I don't like him, he added, as others agreed. If the trip is for the sake of the Palestinian people, he's welcome, another one said. But we're against anyone who visits just for the sake of Israel. We haven't forgotten Britain's old stance, the Balfour Declaration, and the division of Palestine. It's very important that the visit isn't just because of the interest in Israel and Jerusalem. The Israel-occupied West Bank in 1967, under the Oslo Peace Agreements, the semi-autonomous Palestinian Authority has jurisdiction over parts of the West Bank. The Duke's visit comes amid growing tensions in the region, with deadly clashes on the Gaza border, following protests as Israel marks its 70th anniversary year and the decision of Trump to move the U.S. Embassy from Tel Aviv to the, the disputed city of Jerusalem. We're going to take a music moment and come back with technology. Blessings and grace. Grass. 
Blessings and grace, and I'm back with Technology on Futurism.com. By turning down 23andMe, immigration activists are actually being responsible about genetic privacy. 23andMe offered to genetically test undocumented immigrants. Fortunately, some smart people said no thanks. Some quick background in case you were holding your hands over your ears last week. The U.S. government is separating thousands of migrant children from their families as they cross into the United States after widespread criticism from scientists who note that the separations like these could damage these children permanently and the United Nations, which called the practice a human rights violation, President Trump signed an executive order to keep families together, but, but for the thousands that have already been separated, it's not clear how parents and children will be reunited. So the new plan to reunite families separate across the U.S. announced Monday is fraught with holes and problems. The government some have speculated, has no intention of ever actually reuniting the families it forcibly separated at the border. Last week, the House of Representatives Jackie Spire of California, a Democrat, who referred to the practice of separating migrant children under the age of two as a war crime, reached out to her friend, 23andMe CEO Ann Wojcicki, and to see if the company could help. On the surface, it seemed like a simple way to use existing technology, to bring people back together, especially since some migrant children have been separated from their parents at ages too young to know their parents' names. 23andMe jumped at the idea, almost immediately offering to provide genetic testing kits to families and separated children. MyHeritage, another direct-to-consumer genetic company, quickly followed suit because the government failed to keep accurate records of separated children to later reunify families. The genetic test could fill in the gaps that match separated families. Raices Texas, one of the biggest nonprofit organizations that has been raising money and providing legal support to these refugee and migrant families, decided Monday to turn 23andMe and My Heritage away, according to KQED. There is no question that Spire, 23andMe, and My Heritage had good intentions, though they surely also saw a chance at the public relations move of a lifetime. But as the publications like The Verge and USA Today noted, the project came with far more probably unintended dangers because it means compiling a genetic database of asylum seekers and other immigrants who were separated from their families upon entering the U.S. and are desperate to find their families again. Collecting this genetic information would give these companies and the government, if the records were subpoenaed, the ability to trace these families for purposes far beyond uniting parents with children. It would create a store of private information about migrants that could be devastating if leaked or sold. My Heritage spokesperson told The Verge that any concerns that these genetic tests might be used to surveil immigrants were unfounded since private companies could choose to not share their results with the government. And the test could also reveal that people have a higher risk or predisposition towards certain medical conditions like cancer or Alzheimer's disease, and revealing these conditions without providing access to counseling would be an ethical minefield of its own. And on eurekamagazine.co.uk, electronic skin brings a sense of touch to prosthetics. A team of engineers at Johns Hopkins University has created the Edermis, an electronic skin that can be laid on top of prosthetic hands and allows a real sense of touch through the fingertips. Made of fabric and rubber laced with sensors to mimic nerve endings, 
Edermis recreates a sense of touch as well as pain by sensing stimuli and relaying the impulses back to the peripheral nerves. It, it is inspired by what is happening in human biology with receptors for both touch and pain, said Luke Osborne, a graduate student in biomedical engineering. A prosthetic hand that is already on the market can be fitted with an edermis that can tell the wearer whether he or she is picking up something that is round or whether it has sharp points. The edermis conveys information to the amputee by electrically stimulating peripheral nerves in the arm in a non-invasive way. Inspired by human biology, the edermis enables its user to sense a continuous spectrum of tactile perceptions, from light touch to noxious or painful stimulus. The, e the edermis is not sensitive to temperature. For this study, the team focused on detecting object curvature for touch and shape perception and sharpness for pain perception. Osborne says that the technology could be used to make robotic systems more human and it could also be used to expand or extend to astronaut gloves and spacesuits. We're going to take a music moment and come back with Herbnology. Blessings and grace. <music> Mm-hmm. Uh -huh. 
your greens before the green consumes you. Focused on the dollar and the dream until the body lets down on you. You say the cat is hard to chew, so you'd rather eat your junk food. Stagnant frequency inside the temple. Now it's affecting your mental state of mind. It happens all the time. You better eat your greens, greens, greens. Asparagus, parsley. Cucumber, carrot, and don't forget the collard greens, basil, oregano. You know I love my avocado. I'm in love with the cocoa, coconut. Daylight come, told me I go pick a bunch of green banana, boil it in a stew. So you know I gotta add some callaloo. Eat your greens. Blessings and grace, and I'm back with Herbnology. I'm going to talk about the, the amazing benefits of beets. The most powerful health benefits of beets includes its ability to lower blood pressure, prevent cancer, cleanse the liver, treat anemia, increase stamina, and boost the libido. They also prevent macular degeneration, improves blood circulation, aids in skin care, prevents cataracts, builds immunity, and treats respiratory problems. The benefits of beetroot can be attributed to their richness in nutrients, vitamins, and minerals. Beets are abundant in dietary nitrates, which get converted into nitric oxide in the body. And nitric oxide helps relax and dilate the blood vessels, thereby lowering blood pressure and preventing hypertension. And the betaines in beets stimulate the function of the liver and keep it healthy. Also, pectin, a water-soluble fiber in these, in these root vegetables, helps to flush out the toxins from the liver. According to the American Liver Foundation, beets help heal liver diseases. They are one of the superfoods that have the ability to reverse fatty liver. And red beetroots have a significant amount of iron, which helps prevent anemia and boosts the regeneration of red blood cells. Furthermore, vitamin C in beets aids in boosting the iron absorption. And studies have revealed that beets are, are excellent, good, at preventing skin and lung and colon cancer, since they contain the pigment beta-cyanins, which counteracts cancerous cell growth. So the nitrates used in meats as a preservative can stimulate the production of nitrosamine compounds in the body, which can also result in cancer. So recent studies have shown that beet juice inhibits the cell mutations caused by these compounds. Also, the natural beta-carotene in beetroot helps prevent lung cancer. And the betaine present in beets is a powerful bioactive compound that helps lower the levels of, of um, homocysteine in the body. High levels of homocysteine can cause cardiovascular problems such as arterial sclerosis, heart attacks, and strokes. So betaine 
further helps inhibit chronic inflammation when it comes to heart disease. So beet fiber helps reduce cholesterol and triglycerides by increasing the level of good HDL cholesterol, and the fiber also works to eliminate excess LDL cholesterol from the body quickly. And research shows that the consumption of whole beets improves running performance in healthy adults. This actually increases and boosts endurance and stamina. Beet juice has shown to improve athletic performance in runners, swimmers, cyclists, making it an interesting sports drink that most people would never consider. And brain health. Beets improve brain neuroplasty because of the nitrates present in it. These nitrates help increase oxygenation of the somatomotor cortex, a brain area that is often affected in the early stages of dementia. And as people get older, blood flow to the brain decreases, which leads to decreased cognition, and eating beets can prevent this. And it acts as an aphrodisiac. Beets have been considered an aphrodisiac or a sexual booster for millennia. Part of this stems from the fact that beets contain significant levels of the mineral boron, which has been shown to boost the production of sexual hormones. This can lead to a boost in your libido, increased fertility, sperm mobility improvement, and a reduction in frigidity in the bedroom. Your sexual life can get a, le get a legitimate and time-tested push in the right direction by adding beets to your diet. It also boosts blood detoxification. Beets are excellent as a blood cleanser, as the betaine in beets help improve and promote a liver cleanse. The liver is the vital organ that detoxifies the blood that comes through the digestive tract before it flows through the rest of the body. It can also reduce birth defects. Beets are good for pregnant women since they are a source of B vitamin folate, which helps in the development of the infant's spinal column. Deficiency in folate can lead to various birth defects, such as neural tube defects. It promotes weight loss. This helps optimize metabolism. It helps in losing excess weight. Beet juice is often prescribed in detoxifying diets as it helps to cleanse the liver and blood, which in turn helps lose the weight. It can also prevent respiratory problems and, and also boost your immunity. Prevent cataracts. It's a high source of fiber. The potassium-rich beetroot helps lower the risk of stroke and other heart issues. Potassium is a vasodilator, meaning that it relaxes the blood vessels and reduces blood pressure throughout the body. Therefore, intake of beets is recommended to improve heart health. And it promotes bone health and boosts digestion. And high in folate, beets help in the optimal functioning and repair of cells. This helps prevent premature aging. Abundant in antioxidants and vitamin C, beets are a natural way to ensure the glow on your skin. So again, the health benefits of beetroot, it stimulates liver, liver function, it reduces the risk of birth defects, it cures fever and constipation, it supports the structure of your capillaries, it strengthens the heart and reduces cholesterol, it helps prevent asthma symptoms, it prevents skin, lung, and colon cancer, it reduces macular de degeneration, and it boosts the immune system and the libido. So you can have beets in soups or salad, roasted or steamed or pickled. You can have the beet juice. 
Enjoy the beet greens. You can make them in, into a salad as they are packed with important nutrients such as potassium, copper, magnesium, vitamin A, K, and C. And they also lower your risk of chronic diseases such as type 2 diabetes and stroke. And beets are used commonly in vegan chocolate cakes as they pair well with chocolate and help give these plant-based dishes a deeper flavor. So, again, the nature of the Most High, the beets, and how it's here to help us and heal us. We're going to take a music moment and come back with the metaphysics of the moment. Blessings and grace. Her dark complexion scream Raging back till it no longer fought her Bleached her hair The blondest it could go Melted it with iron Cause the office gig Says she ought to No, no. 
it's time you open up that metaphysical grave that had been dug for you, the part of you, the spark that lays buried. That is what's going to open you up. That's what's going to give you the ability to escape. Escape your metaphysical mind. Blessings and grace, and I'm back with the metaphysics of the moment. And so the first word that we're going to explore is the word race. Race consciousness and the metaphysical meaning. Race consciousness, the human race, has formed laws of physical birth and death, laws of sickness and physical inability, laws making food the source of bodily existence, laws of mind that recognize no other source of existence except the physical. The sum total of these laws forms a race consciousness separate from and independent of creative mind. When creative mind sought to help men spiritually, the mind of the flesh opposed it and made every effort to solve its problem in its own way. The great need for the human family is mind control. The great need of the human family is mind control. Jesus, Yeshua, showed us that mastery is attained through realization of the power of spirit. Mastery is attained through the realization of the power of the spirit. Now the race errors, the erroneous race thoughts that bind mankind to sin, disease, poverty, war, and calamity, and death. Those are the errors that bind us to those things. And the race mind is the totality of beliefs, thoughts, and memories, feelings, and experiences of the race. Man has built into the race mind a consciousness of corruptible flesh instead of the inherent incorruptible substance of God mind. And the term chosen people, metaphysically chosen people, along with the doctrine of hell and eternal punishment, there came into the theological world a very warped idea of a chosen people. In the minds of certain churchmen and their followers, the beliefs became general that God chose certain people to be saved in heaven and elected the remainder of the race to eternal damnation. There is not the slightest foundation in the Bible for such a belief. There is, however, a beautiful teaching about a chosen people. In all the history of this race God, has at different times chosen certain ones to do a certain work. Sometimes he made a choice of an individual as Moses, Elijah, and Paul. Early in recorded history, he chose Abraham and then his family and then the whole race of Abraham's descendants. This race of people were called Israelites and they were chosen for a special purpose in God's plan of blessing for all men. They have been watched over kept, guarded, guided, and disciplined by the Most High in a marvelous way, that the seed of faith in the one true God might be kept alive and nourished in men, and that a people might be prepared through whom his kingdom would be established upon the earth. But the chosen people of the greatest importance are the class described by Peter in his first letter, Ye are an elect race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession, that ye may show forth the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. The calling of Israel was justified when out of Israel came Yeshua, the world's deliverer 
and Savior. The ministry he began in Palestine has been going on for 2,000 years and has not yet reached its completion. His great work of restitution calls for a company of tried and trained and spiritually developed people to work with him in establishing his glorious kingdom of righteousness and peace upon the earth. These people are now being made ready. We are living in the times of restitution. Out of this generation, the royal priesthood of those that are to reign as kings and priests, Revelations 1, 5, 6, 5, 10, will come. These people will be the beginning of the holy nation that is to fill all the earth with its glory. They are now the light of the world, and their light will increase until the dark places of the earth are lighted up. By overcoming, they are incorporating into their own consciousness the attributes, the virtues of God, and are therefore becoming more and more the living expression of His righteousness and glory. They make up the Christ body that is so wonderfully described by Paul. Through them the world is to receive its restitutional blessings, and Yeshua shall be glorified as the King of this whole earth. An individual consciousness, people represent thoughts. Our chosen people are our spiritually enlightened and obedient thoughts. As fast and as various of states of consciousness and thoughts in us became awakened by the inner Christ light and changed their activities to accord with truth, they entered the ranks of the chosen people. And Adam, the metaphysical meaning of Adam, the name of the first man of the human race, according to the Bible. In Genesis 5, 1 to 5. And also a city, in, a city mentioned in Joshua 3, 16. Metaphysically, the first movement of mind in its contact with life and substance. Adam also represents the generic man, the whole human race epitomized in an individual man idea. Eve is the feminine aspect of generic man, outwardly manifest, male and female, created he them. If the ego or will, which is man, has adhered to wisdom faithfully and is carried out in its work, the plans that are idealized in wisdom, it has created a harmonious consciousness. Adam in the Garden of Eden is symbolical of that consciousness. Adam in his original creation was in spiritual illumination, spiritually breathed into him continually the necessary inspiration and knowledge to give him superior understanding. But he began eating or appropriating ideas of two powers, God and not God, or good and evil. The result, so the allegory relates, was that he fell away from spiritual life and all that it involves. Man is spirit, absolute and unconditioned, but man forms an Adamic consciousness into which he breathes the breath of life. This, in its perfect expression, is the son of man, an expression of the divine idea. This Adam is all of what we term soul, intellect, and body. We are continually at work with this Adam. We can breathe into his nostrils the breath of life, inspiring him with the idea of life in all its unlimited fullness. We can lift up this Adam by infusing into him these sublime ideas and in no other way.
and Pamphylia. Pamphylia is a Hebrew word that means heterogeneous people of every race, a mixture of nations. A seacoast district in Asia Minor, Paul preached in Perga, a city in Pamphylia, Acts 13.13 and Acts 14.24 and 25. It was in Pamphylia that Mark left Paul and Barnabas on his first trip with them in Acts 15.38. Metaphysically, it's a mixed state of thought, a mixture of nations of every race. And Zamzuminim. Zamzuminim means buzzes, hubbub, noise, noisy, multitude, swarming, barbarians, an ancient race of giants that were called Zamziminim by the Ammonites in Deuteronomy 2.20. They are thought to have been of the Zuzim of, the, of um, Genesis 14.5. Metaphysically, Zamziminim means disorder, confusion, worries, fears, inharmony. The result of the rule of physical force, of vitality, of strength, and individual consciousness without any restraining or refining influences, whatever. No refining, no restraining, just barbarism. The buzz, the hubbub, noisy multitude, swarming barbarians. These people were an ancient race of giants who disappeared before the time of the Israelites. They gave place to the Ammonites who dwelt in their land until they in turn were conquered by Israel. The Ammonites were, in, were enemies of the Israelites, and they represent, among other things, popular opinion. This is a very active restraining influence over brute force and strength. Man first begins to restrain himself and to act in a more civilized manner to a great extent because of what others may think and say, since he learns early to desire the goodwill of his friends and associates. Then, as he gains a degree of refinement because of this, the other human's reasons, higher ideals come to him until sooner or later he unfolds to the place wherein he is ready for true spiritual understanding and expression, which are here represented by the Israelites. And the word existence. Metaphysically, existence is the state or fact of having being. Manifestation, the object of man's existence, is to bring forth in the race that which exists in God. To bring forth in the race, within the moment of the race, within the momentum of the race, within the race itself, that which exists in God. So we can help replace the chaos that's going to culminate soon, right? By replacing it with what? with what exists in God, manifesting it here, as we are all part of God's existence, overstand, and manifestations and glory of the Most High, and the gifts bestowed. And the gifts bestowed. And Tamphanes. Tamphanes is Hebrew. It means the principle of bringing forth, principle of beginning, beginning of the world, the source of the race. The God is Tamphanes. Laurel, the source of the race. In Egyptian city, in Jeremiah 44.1, Jeremiah was taken to the city along with the remnant of Judah that Nebuchadnezzar left behind in Judea when he took the people captive to Babylon. 
Jeremiah 43.79, excuse me. The city is called Tehephenehes in Ezekiel 30.18. Metaphysically, Jeremiah being taken to Tepanis, along with the remnant of Judah that was left in Judea by Nebuchadnezzar when he took the people of Judah captive to Babylon, Jeremiah 43, 4-7, but speak of falling in consciousness from faith in the highest spiritual truth regarding the source of wholeness and of all good, which source is spiritual ideas to the darkened Egyptian or carnal belief in humans mean of healing and bringing forth. So we went to this carnal belief of human means of healing and bringing forth as opposed to the spiritual belief and truth of healing and bringing forth. The principle of bringing forth laurel in Egyptian city, this belief breaks down one's confidence in divine wisdom and understanding. The highest spiritual wisdom center is located in the top or the crown of the head. Jeremiah 43 states that the Israelites who were left behind in Judea but the king of Babylon would not listen to Jeremiah, who warned them to stay where they were in order to be safe. Instead of obeying Jeremiah's warning, they went to Egypt, to Tamphanes, and forced Jeremiah to accompany them. The result was what, that, was what they had feared in Judea overtook them in Egypt. The inference is clear. When one will not listen to higher wisdom, the word of the Lord by Jeremiah but goes to the darkened sense mind for guidance. One is sure to come to grief. And that thing that one fears will come to pass. As thoughts are magnets, overstand with electronic receptors, pulling the energy toward it at rates we can't even comprehend. So we have to draw those thoughts and the bringing forth of those principles from the spiritual mind, from the most high mind, understand, and not look to man, but to divine understanding, divine wisdom, to make everything clear. So again, the source of the race is the most high. The source of the race is the most high. And we are individually commanded by that source to manifest the most high's will here. It's really that simple. To bring the most high's will here. And we cannot allow these outside beliefs to break down our confidence in divine wisdom and understanding and overstanding. And Timaeus is Hebrew for contaminated, defiled, unclean, impure, polluted, infamous, and profane. The father of Bartimaeus, a blind beggar who was healed by Yeshua in Mark 10.46. Metaphysically, Timaeus, a phase of consciousness that is contaminated with error, defiled, polluted, profane, which is the result of the race habit of attributing honor and precedence to old established religious beliefs and customs 
to the exclusion of present spiritual inspiration. To the exclusion. See, we can't exclude the present as it is a present, and doing so would be disrespecting the gift. So we have to honor and respect and put in its proper order the knowledge and inspiration so that our consciousness will not be filled with error. You know, we have to give the we have to give the present the respect that it's due and how it is inspiring the change and growth that's necessary to add to the ancient sacred, to uplift it into a new daylight in Yeshua's name. We're going to take a music moment. Blessings and grace. Blessings and grace. I'd like to thank you for joining me for another offering of Woman Wednesday. And I'd like to show love to the musical frequency that accompanies me, as that was just Eric Lau, Belief, followed by Sun Ra, God's Spell. Eric Lau, C. Jennifer Lara, Natural Mystic. Eric Lau, featuring Georgia Ann Muldrow, Lily of the Valley. F. Soul, Greens. Kalissa, Give Your All. Eric Lau, Supreme, Afro Warriors, DJ Merger, Nuvacal, Spheres of Fortune, Lord Echo, Street Knowledge, Hemptus Sativa, Revolution, Lord Echo, Miracle Dance, Eric Lau, The Best Good, A Message from Coltrane, Marla Brown, featuring Mutu Baraka, Words of Wisdom, Eric Lau and Dudley Perkins, featuring Rahel and Georgia Ann Muldrow, Yet and Still, Tamani, Power, Desiree, Rulers of Heaven, Earthology, The Whitefield Brothers, featuring Bajaka, Sarak, 13th Planet, and John 9, Legitimate. Remember that you are water. Cry, cleanse, and flow. Remember that you are fire. Burn, tame, ignite. Remember that you are air. Be still, focus, decide. Remember that you are earth. Ground, build, and give. Blessings, grace, love, and strength to all. Mm -hmm.